Uh, Louis Zamperini. Has anybody read the story of Louis Zamperini? His life was told in a book by Lauren Hildenbrand, Hillenbrand uh, called Unbroken. If you haven't read the book, you may have seen the movie, which was directed by uh, Angelina Jolie. The movie's called Unbroken as well, and it's the incredible story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Louis, Louis Zamperini was an Olympic distance runner, and he competed in the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. But soon after the Olympics, his athletic career ended when he was uh, when he became a bombardier in the U.S. Air Force and fought in World War II. And during the war, his plane that he was fighting in was gunned down in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and he survived 47 days. Not only did he survive his plane being gunned down, but he survived 47 days of being stranded in the ocean, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. At the time, I believe that was a, a like a world record that nobody had ever spent that amount of time. But when he finally washed on shore, he was discovered by the enemy. And he spent two years being daily and mercilessly being tortured in prisoner of war camps before he finally was rescued and was able to go home. And it really is an incredible story that one man could survive a series of events like that. Being gunned down in, from the sky into the ocean, 47 days in the Pacific Ocean, and then two years in a POW camp. That's impressive in and of itself. And if you saw the film, that's the story you know. Because the credits rolled and the screen faded to black when Louis was being rescued by the U.S. Air Force. But there's so much more to the story of Louis Zamperini that many people don't know because they only saw the movie and they didn't read the book. And it's a real tragedy that the full story wasn't told in the movie. Because the full story is this. After returning from the war, Zamperini became an angry, bitter, abusive alcoholic. He was not a very good father, not a very good husband. He was angry, he was bitter, and his, he, had, he lived a hard life. But later in his life, he was invited to hear a man by the name of Billy Graham preach at a Los Angeles revival. And after he heard Billy Graham preach the Bible, he had an encounter with God. He came home that night, poured out all of his booze down the drain, became a follower of Jesus, and got sober. He rebuilt his marriage, rebuilt his relationship with his children, but that is not all. As he began to grow in his faith and read the scriptures and begin to mature spiritually, he felt that God was calling him to travel to Japan, find the very men who tortured him in the POW camps, forgive them, tell them about the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, and give them a copy of the scriptures. The first half of Zamperini's story is pretty exciting, and Angelina Jolie told it really well in her movie, and it's impressive. Olympic athlete, POW survivor, the endurance, the strength, the resolve that Louis Zamperini displayed. In the first half of his story, we get a glimpse of how impressive Louis Zamperini was. But it's the second half of Louis Zamperini's story where we see how impressive God is. You see, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah for the last several weeks, and in this book, We've seen the people of Israel, the people of God, through the leadership of Nehemiah, rebuild their city after it had been destroyed. And the story of Nehemiah up to this point, is, it's a pretty impressive example of faith and vision and wisdom and leadership and resolve and all of that. And if the story ended right there, we might be tempted to talk about how great Nehemiah is 
and how he's an example of a great leader and a visionary. And, uh, you know, we would write business books about leadership lessons from Nehemiah. People have done that. But there's another half of the Nehemiah story. And it, it doesn't tell how great Nehemiah is. It tells how great God is among his people. You see, Nehemiah helped the people restore their city, but now we're getting to the part of the book where God restores the hearts and the lives of his people. You see, Nehemiah is a story about the spiritual awakening of the people of God. The mission of rebuilding the city was merely preparation for the real mission of God renewing and reawakening the hearts of his people. So Nehemiah chapter 6 ends like this. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. They completed the wall in 52 days. This is a, about a two-mile wide, 40-foot high wall that they built in 52 days. It, the size and scope is just unbelievably impressive. And it says, verse 16, when all of their enemies had heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Remember the guys that used to make fun of them and tell them it would never happen and that their God was weak and wimpy? And now they're afraid, and they're going, whoa, in great esteem. It says, for they perceived that this work had only been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, then says, the city was wide and large, but listen to this, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So the people, there's this small group of people in Jerusalem that rebuilt the city in 52 days, but all the people of God, the people of Israel, were scattered because of the exile. And so the city was empty, and they were like, there's nobody to live in in this city. We need people to build homes. So chapter 7 is just a book of names. We're not going to read that today, although it is, you know, it's worth your time. Nehemiah calls the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. And chapter 7 records all of the people who came back to their city, came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt their, rebuilt homes. About 40,000, 50,000 people. And that would be a great ending, right? The years of, 100 plus years of exile, the temple's been rebuilt, the city walls have been rebuilt, the people have returned, and they're rebuilding their life together as the people of God. The people have been restored. But for what purpose, right? The city has been established. Why? You know, we've talked in this series, we've said we're rebuilding as a church. We're rebuilding after a very difficult year of COVID where a lot of people have moved away. Several people, some people in our church have passed away. Some people have drifted away. And we're going, we want to reestablish our church. Why? So that we can have a website and have people that gather together in a room and we can be a 501c3 that people give money to. And No, that's not why we establish a church to just exist. We establish a church so that God can display his purposes in us and through us, that he can awaken us to what his desire for our life is. And this is what's happening in Nehemiah. The city has been rebuilt, the people are back, but God is not, he was never merely concerned with where they live. He was concerned for their hearts. And Nehemiah knew this too. He knew that building the city was not an end in itself. Just like starting a church is not an end in itself. The end is the glory of God among God's people. But Nehemiah, he, he saw that this building of the city was setting the table for something greater. And what was that? He wanted to see spiritual awakening in his generation. And so Nehemiah... Nehemiah's a pretty wise guy. He was an organizer. He was a politician. He was sort of a leader. And he's like, we need a pastor now. 
So he steps aside, and the rest of the book, Nehemiah kind of steps into the shadows, and Ezra, who is a pastor, prophet, scholar, teacher of the Bible, he steps into the forefront, and Ezra comes forth, and Nehemiah chapter 8 opens like this. It says, and all the people gathered as, uh, as one man, meaning they all gathered into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could un who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read it from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the city's been rebuilt. Nehemiah says, hey, Ezra, I want you to open up the scriptures. And the people say, bring out the book. We want to hear it. And so you have the people of Israel gathering all together, about 50,000 people, and they're all saying, bring out the book. We want to hear from the book. And they're talking about the law of Moses. And this is what we recognize as the first five books of the Bible. And for the Old Testament people of God at that time, that was how their understanding of the scriptures. We call it Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Ezra reads from that. And it says he read, read from the morning to the afternoon. So it's like five, six, seven hour sermon, okay? So I don't wanna hear any complaints about 35 minutes, okay? And what happened was Ezra read from the scripture. This was the process. You can read about this in chapter 8. Ezra read from the scriptures, and then the Levite priests would come up, and they translated the scriptures into the language of the people because most of the people no longer spoke Hebrew because they had been assimilated into Syrian culture for a while, and now they spoke Aramaic. So their own book that, in Hebrew, they didn't even know. The Hebrew people didn't even know the Hebrew language. So the Levite priests translate the Bible into Aramaic for them, and then they apply it. They preach. So they say, okay, the book says this. Here's what that means for us today. And they applied it, and it says that all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then it continues in verse 9. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, who was the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So as the people hear the scriptures read, they begin to understand what the scriptures say, and they begin to understand that they've been disobedient to God. They have spent the last hundred plus years in exile as a result of their disobedience. And during that time, they have grown unfamiliar with the scriptures, which means they've grown unfamiliar with the commands of God for them. And they begin to grieve and they begin to weep. They go a hundred plus lost years where we could have been hearing the scriptures taught and we could have been obeying God and we've been off exiled and we've not had priests to teach us the scriptures and therefore we have not obeyed the scriptures, therefore we have not obeyed our God. And they begin to grieve and they begin to weep. And they said, we've wasted years. But Nehemiah and Ezra, they stand up and they say, hey guys, stop crying. Today's holy. We're gonna eat good food. We're gonna drink good wine. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
And it says the people, they understood these words and they began partying. That's what happened. And in the book of Nehemiah so far, here's what we've seen. We've seen a group of people, God's chosen people, move from a place of shame. They were exiled, their city was destroyed, their culture was being lost, their spiritual lives had dwindled down to almost nothing. There was no vibrancy in their faith, in their life with God. They were in total shame. But through the reading of the scriptures, God breathes new life into these people, and they begin celebrating and experiencing the joy and the strength of the Lord. Now, we've called our study in the, in the book of Nehemiah, we've called it Rebuild. Uh, we're not rebuilding city walls as a church, but we're rebuilding our lives after the last seven, 16, 17 months. There's all sorts of rebuilding projects going on in this room. Some people are trying to rebuild your lives after losing someone you love. Some people are trying to rebuild your lives after multiple friends moved away. Some of you are trying to rebuild your lives after just a hard year. And our church is trying to rebuild our church after a difficult season. And in some ways, COVID feels like a form of exile, doesn't it? We're all weary. <laughs> We're all broken down. Our church has taken some blows. Many of you, the joy of your faith, like the strength of your faith, the vibrancy of your faith has atrophied during this season. And you're tired. You become bored to the things of God. You become numb to the Spirit of God. And your faith has just simply atrophied. And you need, and we need, a spiritual awakening just like the people of God experienced in the book of Nehemiah. This is my prayer for my life. This is my prayer for your life. This is my prayer for our church. And this is my prayer for our city that we would be reawakened to the truth and the fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I mean, what, uh, what, what is our strength? The joy of the Lord. And so I want you to see from this text four stages of spiritual awakening. And if we were to experience spiritual awakening in our lives and in our church, maybe we'll have to walk through the same process that the people of God walked through in the book of Nehemiah. There's four stages to the process of spiritual awakening. The first is an awakening of longing or an awakening of desire, particularly a longing for the Word of God. Listen, there is no move of God that will ever begin in the world, in our church, or in your heart that will not first begin with the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. No movements of God, no revivals, no spiritual awakenings will ever happen apart from the Word of God being breathed into God's people. Romans 10, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In this account of the people of God in Nehemiah, think about this. They've spent the last hundred plus years in exile. They've lived as a, an oppressed minority in a culture that was not their own, which means they've not had any sustained teaching of the Scriptures for over a century. In fact, most of the people no longer even spoke Hebrew, like I said. They dissimilated to the cultures around them and spoke Aramaic. But after a century of not regularly being taught the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit births within them in this moment a longing to hear the Word of God afresh. And they say, it's, I love that it says, and the people said, bring out the book. Like there's this, like this, they're, they're longing to hear what the scriptures say. 50,000 people at the gates of the city shouting, bring out the book. So my wife and I, we were supposed to go tonight. Our plan was after church, we were gonna get a babysitter, we were gonna go grab dinner, and we were gonna go to Madison Square Garden and see the Eagles. 
perform. I know, I'll be the youngest person there. It's all right. But it's been rescheduled for Wednesday because of the storm. So, but here's what's going to happen on Wednesday. We're going to go to Madison Square Garden. There's going to be 20,000 people my parents' age and then my wife and me. And the lights are going to go dark and everybody's going to start shouting. You know, we want the Eagles. And then they come out and we're going to say, play new kid in town. You know, play heartache tonight. You know, we're, everybody's going to be screaming, play the songs, play the songs. A crowd of people are all going to be gathering together Wednesday night to hear the Eagles play the hits. And in Nehemiah, you've got the people of God gathering together, shouting, but they're not shouting for entertainment. They're shouting for something far more meaningful and far more serious. They're longing to have an encounter with the living God through his word. They want to hear the past stories of God's faithfulness to their ancestors so that they can remember and know that God is good. They want, they want to hear God's commands so that they can obey. When was the last time you were like, I just want to know God's commands so that I can obey what he says? They want to hear of God's forgiveness. They want to hear of God's plan and purpose for their lives. You see, this is where spiritual awakening begins, with a longing to hear from God through his word. It's the same with them in 500 B.C., and it's the same for us in 2021. Awakening begins with a longing to hear from God? Do you long to hear from God? Do you want to obey God? Is that what you really want for your life? Do you crave to hear what God's commands are? You know, David said, I delight in the commands of the Lord. I delight in the law of the Lord. Many of us were like, I delight in the passages where it says like, God has a plan and a purpose for my life and he wants to do great things. But how many of us say, I delight in the law of the Lord, the commands of God, the ethics of God, that's what David said, and that's what the people of God in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah said. How long has it been since you cried out, God, I want to hear from you. Bring out the book. Maybe that should be what we do every Sunday. You guys chant. I'll stand backstage, you know, and you guys all hear, bring out the book. And I'll come out, you know, ah, we got it. You know, we'll lift it high and we'll all shout. Listen, this is what I've been praying with our staff. This is what I've been praying with the group of us that gather uh, on Zoom every Wednesday morning to pray for our church. I'm praying that God will give you and me and us, I'm praying that God will give the people of Brooklyn a longing to hear from and encounter God. Because I think a lot of us, if we're honest, are just bored with God right now. And I want us to long for God's voice and his word to fall afresh in our lives. Do you want to hear from God? That's where spiritual awakening begins. What do you really want? The direction of your life will head in the direction of what you really want. And if you really want to hear from God, you will walk in the way of God. So the second stage of spiritual awakening is an awakening of regret or guilt. You're like, oh, this doesn't sound fun. Well, stay with me. See, as the people heard the scriptures read, they began to weep. Why were they weeping? What were they grieving over? They were grieving over regret. Regret for what? Regret for a century spent not walking in the way of God. They have spent a century in shame 
and they haven't walked in the fullness of life that God prepared for them. We see in chapter 9 that as Ezra read, the people heard stories of God's faithfulness to them. They heard stories of commands that God had given them and commands that they had ignored for over a generation. And they became aware of how far they had fallen short of honoring God with their lives, and they began to grieve, and they began to weep. They go, we have not lived up to the life that God has called us to. In short, through reading the scriptures, they began to understand how holy and infinite and perfect and good God is and how shameful and small and trivial they had been. You see, spiritual awakening will never happen in our lives until we first see God for who he is and ourselves for who we are. Spiritual awakening begins when we experience regret and grief for how short we've fallen of God's glory and his purposes for our lives. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says, the root of spiritual revival, both in individuals and in communities, was, is, and always will be vivid realizations of God's holiness, goodness, mercy, and the perversity, shamefulness, offensiveness, and suicidal folly that he sees in our personal sins. Mourning and grieving for sin will thence naturally result, and when these realizations of the truth about God and ourselves are clear and strong, the tears very well may flow. When was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time that you became so grieved over your own sin that it led you to tears? The thing that holds most of us back from having a real spiritual awakening in our lives is our own hardness of heart. Simply put, most of us just don't really care that much about our sin. We're comfortable with it. But spiritual awakening begins when we no longer allow ourselves to be comfortable with our shame. It begins when we feel the grief. You see, think about a marriage that's being rebuilt after infidelity. The marriage can't be rebuilt until the unfaithful spouse first feels grief and shame over what they've done. Rebuilding can't happen unless there's been first an admission that the walls have been broken down. And a spiritual awakening can never happen in our lives until we first admit that we, have, we are prone to wander from the ways of God. But, hear me here, Grief for our sin is not enough to awaken our lives to God. It is the beginning of an awakening, but if we stay there in grief, we will become joyless, miserable people. You know what I mean? There is another step that we must take to experience the fullness of God, and that's the third stage of spiritual awakening, and that is an awakening to the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Nehemiah and Ezra, he saw the people grieving. And they're like, yeah, that's probably good. They probably should grieve. They've been disobedient to God for quite some time. But still, they step in and they say, you got to stop now because today's a good day. Today is a day where we celebrate. We celebrate that God is holy and that he is good and that he is faithful and that he remains faithful to his people and to his covenant. Today, we're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to dance. We're going to celebrate because we have been given the joy of the Lord. Today's not a day for weeping. Today's a day for dancing. You see, God had promised the people of Israel that even though they disobeyed, if they turned back to him, he would welcome them and deliver them and redeem them and continue to honor his covenant with them. And Nehemiah and Ezra, they're like, hey guys, 
turn back, your grief should lead you to repentance, lead you to turn back your, to God. And when you turn back to God, he's right there to welcome you, embrace you, and he's throwing a party today and we're gonna celebrate. So stop crying. How many of you know Christians who never seem to experience any joy? You guys know any Christians like that? Like they just walk around and all they wanna do is talk about their sin and how wretched they are. Oh, I'm so bad. And they don't want it. It's like they don't want other people to experience joy either. They want to, they're like, well, we just really need to talk about our sins. Everybody, you know, sins. We just need to talk about our sins. We need to talk about our sins. We need to talk about our sins. All they want to do is talk about how bad they are. And that feels really spiritual, doesn't it? You're like, man, that person is really holy. Man, they really care about their sin. But it's actually unbiblical. And it leads to death and not life. Because the scriptures say that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You see, God leads us to grief and to repentance so that we can experience joy. Grief is not an end in itself. Grief is a pathway to experience the grace of God. The Holy Spirit does not remind you of your sin so that you can live in shame. He reminds you of your sin and how you've fallen short so that you can lift your eyes up off of yourself and see that God has forgiven you in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, grief over sin is good and right, and the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin and cause you to feel grief and cause you to feel shame. But if you stop right there, that's not Christian. That's just everybody feels shame and guilt. The Christian thing to do is when you experience shame and guilt, is to take your eyes off of your shame and guilt, put your eyes on Jesus who lifts your shame and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so that we will experience the grace of Jesus all over again. Spiritual awakening begins when we live in the joy of the Lord, not in the conviction of sin. Conviction of sin is a portal into experiencing the forgiveness of God. So I haven't really talked about this much here at our church, um, here at district, but uh, you know, I've been a pastor here for six years, and before I came here, I was actually a pastor, a college pastor in the census data, 2010, I don't know what the newest data says, but in 2010, I was a, I was a college pastor in what was, uh, data says, the most churched county in America. And now it sounds like, oh, I bet that was great. You know, everybody loves Jesus. Well, it was actually super hard. And here's why, because college, in the, it was in the South, in the South, there's a lot of guilt-based Christianity. And among college students, they had experienced a lot of this. So they had grown up, and in their youth groups, and in sort of the people they had been around, all they had been told is, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. God will be displeased with you. And one mistake on your prom night, you know, a, a, a season of, you know, craziness in your high school years. They're like, hey, you'll lose your witness. You'll, 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 you'll disappoint God. And so I step onto the college campus of Jacksonville State University, and our desire is to start a college ministry. And all the, other pe all the people in town said, this is a graveyard for campus ministries. I said, none of them ever get off the ground. Even other campus ministers were like, we've been trying, we've been trying, we've been trying, and, and nothing gets started. But by God's grace, and truly by God's grace, we saw hundreds of students come to faith in Christ when we were in Jack. It, it was as close to using the word revival that I've ever seen in my ministry. 
And here's how it happened. It didn't happen by me telling the kids that if they, you know, what they did on their prom night was separating them from God from all eternity. We led with the grace of God. And we didn't beat the students down with their sin. We said, hey, look, we know you made mistakes. We know you've, <laughs> we know people, you know, and we know that we've got grief and we've got shame. But we led with the grace of God. We said, no matter what your past, no matter what even your present is, and even no matter what your future is, Christ died on the cross and defeated sin and shame and death for you. And there's nothing you could do that can make God love you more. There's nothing you could do that can make God love you less. Come to him. Let him remove your shame. Let him remove your guilt. And let him give you new life. And I don't say this to say that I led some great movement. I say this to say that the Spirit of God fell on that campus during that time. And we saw hundreds of students turn from a guilt-based type of religiosity and run to a grace-based Christianity and experience the love of God. It was a powerful thing to be a part of, and my prayer is that it would happen here in Brooklyn as well, that people would experience the grace of God and the joy of the Lord and find that it is our strength. The gospel of Jesus is that we have fallen short. We disobey it. We disappoint others. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint God. But God, being rich in mercy through the death and the resurrection, has given us new life. He has forgiven us in Christ. When you are beaten down, when you are guilt-ridden, when you are covered in shame, it's okay to weep. In fact, it's a good thing to weep over your sin. But you need to know as you weep that there is a portal that you can step through and find joy again. It's called the gospel. And you can remember that even in your guilt, the scriptures say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the things I used to tell our college students was they would say, yeah, I know I received God's forgiveness, but I can't believe I did this thing again. And I would say, on the cross, how, when Jesus was on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. He knew. He knew what you did last night when he was on the cross. And he still prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they... He knew what you're going to do next week. But yet he still endured the cross with the joy for the joy that was set before him so that you could experience new life. There is no sin. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. That is the strength of the Lord, and that is our joy. When you are beaten down, guilt-ridden, and covered in shame, you step through that portal called the gospel, and it will give you new life. The last thing we see in stages of awakening is an awakening to new life or an awakening to obedience. So Nehemiah and the people of Israel, they go through all these stages of awakening, stages of desire, stages of regret, stages of joy. But then... Uh, chapter 8 ends like this. This is in verses 13 through 15. And essentially, uh, it, it, uh, the people of Jerusalem, the end of chapter 8 looks like this. The people of Jerusalem, they realize that there's a command in the scriptures for the people to celebrate something called the Feast of Booths, uh, also known as Sukkot, if, you, you know, if you're familiar with that. And it says, you know, you're supposed to celebrate this. This is in the scriptures early on in the book of the law. It says you're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths during the seventh month of the year. And we talk, actually talked this a few weeks ago with Jesus uh, at the Feast of Booths. But the P Feast of Booths was a time where God's people were commanded to live in tents 
for a season of time as a way of remembering how God had provided shelter for their ancestors in the wilderness when they were wandering from Egypt into the promised land. And as Ezra reads the scriptures, the people are going, wait a second, Feast of Booths? We're supposed to do this in the seventh month of the year? We haven't done this. We haven't even heard of this. They're like, I, in fact, our people haven't celebrated this holiday for over a thousand years, but right here it says that we're commanded by God to do it. So let's make it right. Let's obey the commands of God. And it says they all went out and they gathered leaves and made tents and they honored God's commandment and they all had a great time. So here's what happened. You see, after they had gone through a process of spiritual awakening, on the other side, they just wanted to honor God with their lives. And so they were just looking for ways to obey him. They're like, God has done all this stuff for us. How can we honor him? Oh, here's this feast that we're not doing. Let's do it. That's a way to honor God. He saved us. He delivered us. He forgave us. He redeemed us. He has given us a joy in life. So how can we honor him? Let's build some tents. Let's hang out in, in, in tents for a week. And I love this because so many of us get Christianity and obedience backwards, don't we? We think, I must obey God in order to earn his approval, and I must obey God in order to earn his acceptance and receive his blessings. But the people of God in Nehemiah understood that real obedience comes when we realize that we're already approved and we're already accepted and blessed by God. You see, they were awakened to a new life of obedience to the commands of God through his grace. And I just want to say, those of you who are like, man, I feel like, I, like if you're tempted to feel like you want to earn God's favor by doing more. You've got it backwards. Rest in the favor of God, receive the favor of God, and now go obey because you've been approved, not because you feel like you've got to go do a bunch of things in order to be approved by God. You're already approved by God through Christ. Now you have freedom to go obey Him. So, I started this message with a, a, a story about the life of Louis Zamperini. And in the second half of his life, we saw a real spiritual awakening in his life. He comes home from the war. He's beaten down. He's broken. He's battered. He's wounded. He's bitter. He's angry. And he, becomes, he starts drinking. And I get that. Don't you? I mean, POW for, for a couple years. I mean, like, no, no judgment. Like, I get it. But he lives this life of anger and bitterness and alcoholism for so long that he finally just says, I, this isn't what I want anymore. And he has a desire for a greater life. This is the first step of spiritual awakening. And he goes to a Billy Graham <laughs> revival meeting. He's like, I see what, what all the fuss is about, Billy Graham. And he hears the word of God taught. And he says, this is, this is, this is what I've been longing for. And then he experiences regret over his sin. Man, I've been... a abusive father. I've been a terrible husband. And so he goes home. He takes all the booze, pours it down the drain, and he commits to a life of being a better husband, a better father, and to be a follower of Jesus. And then he experiences the joy of God. God turns his life around, puts a smile on his face. That angry, bitter man becomes a guy who is walking in the joy of the Lord and knows where his strength comes from. But as he matures in, in understanding the grace of Jesus, he begins hearing a voice saying, now I want you to, to obey me in one of the most difficult areas. That guy who tortured you for two years. The guy who tried to kill you. 
the guy who tried, who tried to break you down, the guy who did unspeakable things, the guy who is literally in hiding from war, hasn't been convicted of war crimes. He's in Japan right now, and he may not, he has not heard of the forgiveness of Christ. Louis, will you get up, book a plane ticket to Japan, and tell him of forgiveness in Christ? You see the stages of awakening there? God takes a guy from desire to regret to joy and then to costly radical obedience. And the story is amazing. That is a life of purpose, a life renewed by the power of God for the sake of others. Don't don't you want that to be your life? Don't you want to be somebody who is so awakened to the glory and the joy of God that you're willing to obey him wherever he takes you and wherever he leads you? That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for our church. That's my prayer for our city, that we would be awakened to the grace of God, that we would experience a spiritual awakening. And that happens through knowing that God has forgiven us in Christ. Let me pray for you, church. Father, um, the people of God in this story, they went through this really wild process of seeing where they fell short, but then recognizing how you're still faithful. And God, I know that many people in this room have fallen short in so many places of their lives. And they're living in guilt, they're living in shame, they're living in regret. And God, would I ask that your Holy Spirit would cause us to grieve over our sin, but that your Holy Spirit would then point us to the work of Jesus, who has overcome our sin, who has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. The scriptures say that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. And with salvation comes joy and with salvation comes a life committed to obeying you. And God, I pray that you would awaken that desire within us for your glory and for the sake of others. And it's in your name we pray.